0: Hey, my dear patrons and listeners. I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah, 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 whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the fifth and final interview in Reese's Fall 2019 series, Nuclear Fallout, Science and Society in Eurasia. If you missed any of the past episodes in the series, go to srbpodcast.org or to the podcast SoundCloud page. After the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, International aid organizations sought to help the victims, but were stymied by post-Soviet political roadblocks. Efforts to gain access to the site of catastrophic radiation damage were denied, and the residents of Chernobyl were given no answers as their lives hung in the balance. Drawing on a decade of archival research and on-the-ground interviews in Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, my guest, Kate Brown, dove into Chernobyl's after-effects to unveil the full breadth of the devastation and the whitewash that followed. Her findings make clear the irreversible impact of man-made radioactivity on every living thing, and hauntingly, they force us to confront the untold legacy of decades of weapons testing and other catastrophic nuclear incidents. Kate Brown is a professor of science, technology, and society at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her research interests illuminate the point where history, science, technology, and biopolitics converge to create large-scale disasters and modernist wastelands. She has written four books that have either won awards or have been nominated for them. They include A Biography of No Place, From Ethnic Borderland to Soviet Heartland, Plutopia, Nuclear Families in Atomic Cities and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters, Dispatches from Dystopia, Histories of Places Not Yet Forgotten, and her newest book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Here's Kate Brown. Why don't you tell us about yourself and how you got interested in the history of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union?
1: Uh, well, when I was an undergrad, it, it, it felt a little bit like it feels now. It felt like a precarious time. Uh, Reagan had just been elected president, and he was ramping back up the arms race. And there was a lot of talk about the evil empire that was the Soviet Union and uh, I was nervous, I was nervous that we were all going to blow each other up in a nuclear war, <clears throat> and so I started, you know, I, was, I went to see this movie, Red Dawn, there's been a remake of it, you know, it's a, the Cubans and the Soviets attack Colorado, but because they have the right to bear arms, they just pull the guns out of the back of the pickup truck and they, they defeat the entire Red Army. Um, I knew it was a dumb sort of propaganda, you know, sponsored by the Department of Defense kind of film, but I went to the Chicago, I grew up in Chicago, I went to the theater, and all these kids in the theater were cheering every time a commie died, and um, I got pretty upset about that, and I went home, and I was complaining to my parents about it, my mom's sitting around the kitchen table smoking, and she's like, well, do something about it, change the world, study Russian, you know, and, you know, like, quit griping, basically, so I was like. I was going to be a sophomore at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, so I went off and I took all Russian everything, you know, literature and translation and Russian grammar and Russian history and politics, and then I got hooked. I wanted to read, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in and the original, and, and I mostly wanted to go to the Soviet Union and see for myself if it really was an evil empire. I'm not very good at, like, taking things on faith. I, I always have been, I've gotten into a lot of trouble in my life because I have to go find out for myself. And so that was my goal. And um, so off I went, uh, 1987. And I studied in Leningrad. And uh, it clearly wasn't an evil empire. In fact, people would sort of learn that I was an American and they'd stop me and they'd say, Go home and tell your nation we want peace. You know, it was sort of the opposite experience. And so I finished that job and then I realized that there was a a brand new uh, educational exchange program going on between the Soviet Union and the United States. and it was a Bush Gorbachev initiative. And so I wrote the guy who was starting. I read about him in Time magazine, and I naively wrote him and said, Can you give me a job? You know, I'm a 21 year old with no experience in anything. Um, and I kept badgering him, badgering He finally hired me um, just so I would stop badgering him. And um, so I went off to Middlebury, and we, I worked with this consortium of the minor IVs in this um, exchange, the first fully reciprocal exchange program between the US and the USSR. For the last three years of the Soviet empire. And my job was we sent these students wherever they wanted to go. If they wanted to go to Yakutsk, we sent them to Yakutsk or Georgia or Riga, wherever. And it was my job to go f- find them after three months and six months and solve their often considerable problems, uh, health problems, political problems, problems with the KGB, living problems, food problems. You know, And um, as I went, and especially as you know, there's 88, 89, 90, 91, I um, saw that people were using history to take down this powerful communist party. They, you know, dig up uh, bones in a a courtyard of a monastery and they would point to the bullet holes in the skulls and they'd say, our communist party did this. And I and everywhere I went, whether it was in you know Moldova, I, you, you would see these sort of you know the Soviet Union was supposed to be like America, everybody was Soviet, and all of a sudden all these Moldovans were saying no, we're Moldovian. and you know and, and Ukraine they're all upset because they're Ukrainian, and um, so I started to understand how powerful both history was and this sort of whatever this whatever nationality was, and so that's I went off to grad school after that. Is,
0: is this what kind of informed the, your first book about yeah. the no place? This right. this coming in contact with all of these.
1: Ethnic, ethnic, groups,
0: ethnic groups yeah right uh, you know i want you to actually talk about your identity as a historian because you know i was i was reading a recent interview with you and it it described you as a historian of the hinterlands which i guess goes along with the the interest in ethnicity um and that you also organize a panel at the American Historical Association Conference called on gender, gender busting, <laughs> on genre busting. I guess either one is acceptable. Um, how, how do you really, how do these two things relate to you and your un, your identity of yourself as a historian? And even how does that first personal experience in the Soviet Union also inform that?
1: Well, I, you know, I, as I went to grad school, and, and maybe some of you in, in who are still in school have this experience sometimes, is I would, you know, reading away, you have to read a lot, read a lot, read a lot. And I always got the feeling I'd read these histories that I still didn't know what had happened. You know, that the histories told me facts and they, they sort of analyzed stuff, but I didn't know how people felt. I didn't know what it felt like to live at that time. I didn't know how people responded. And so the genre busting part, especially originally was, I thought, that there had to be a way we could get closer to our historical subjects without making things up. Um, you know, history is you know, an empirical subject. We need sort of, you know, we have this idea of of having evidence um, and having an argument and having evidence to prove our arguments. But it it struck me that history was still a little too close to its 19th century foundations, which comes out of the natural sciences. You know. And so I thought, you know we've had you know sort of revolutions in, in the novel and in literature and art, like major changes in form, how people go about it. But in history, we're still writing the same old you know, here's my argument, let me repeat my argument, here's my evidence, let me repeat my evidence. you know that kind of thing. We're still writing the same form. So I, I thought maybe we could invent a little bit and get a little closer to our historical subjects and I And I knew I couldn't project onto my subjects feelings or emotions or understood what they were thinking but I could put myself in the text and then I could emote and and rationalize and reason and think oh I wonder what it felt like to be like that I wonder if they felt like this Um, that seemed to me a little bit more honest I wasn't saying this is how Himmler you know, wallowed in his bathtub, you know, nobody knows how he wallowed in his bathtub, but Shaman's, you know, Shama <laughs> says that this is how he did it. And I never believed that either. So I wanted to find a, a genre, and so I I wrote my um, my f- dissertation as a first-person travelogue because, you know, the idea of no place is that everybody who was there to tell the story was gone. This place had been decimated in the course of Stalinism and the World War II, and I had to travel to these distant places to to find the people to tell me their story of this no place where people no longer existed. So I started to think after that, that every, there shouldn't just be one boilerplate for this is what a history sounds like and reads like, that every topic should suggest its own format. So then the next book I wrote, Plutopia, was about the first two cities in the world to to produce plutonium. And I wrote that as a tandem history, um, thinking of these two cities as sort of linked together every time one of them built a new reactor or dumped a lot of radioactive waste in a river. The other one matched that effort and that these two acted in sort of a an unspoken nonverbal dialogue throughout the Cold War together. So that that the way we, that tandem history the format of it is is that short chapters cut back and forth between the two places in almost a montage fashion.
0: I actually I really like the fact that your, your more recent books do have this very short chapters, uh, mostly because it, it gives the reader the satisfaction that you're going somewhere, like you're moving through the text very well. But I, I, I want to have you talk a bit about you as a writer, because one of the things one hears a lot about you is that they, your writing is appreciated. You're a good storyteller, you're a good writer. Um, so, and, and considering how you insert yourself into the story, Uh, I'm curious, what is your approach to writing and how you formulate your narratives where you you have to put yourself in the story or you put yourself in the story, but you don't want to make it about you at the same time, right? So how do you approach that?
1: Um, Well, I I, I guess I think about um, setting up scenes, things that I might later want to write about. So, um, you know, I once saw Uh, A documentary about a a famous historian and and it was kind of a boring documentary because it showed her opening a filing cabinet bending over her books um, going into an archive and opening another filing cabinet i mean what we do is pretty boring to look at Um, so what i try to do is, is think of ways to get a little closer to my story um that has some action to it, so that I can later describe it in my book. So like for this biography of no place, I took a lot of um, long train trips, um, sort of redoing these deportations that people experienced from Ukraine to Kazakhstan. I, I redid that long, long. My train ride was much faster than the exiles um, train ride was. But, and I, I sort of wandered around these borderlands and talked to people, and as I did, um and, I, and it was during the middle of the 1990s and there was no train or bus service so I had to hitchhike and sometimes I had to hitchhike on a horse and carriage you know horse and cart for the most part or oftentimes I just had to walk or bike um and as I went around sort of this you know slow travel um you know I'd need something to drink or eat and, and people would there was no place to buy anything so people would offer me these you know, beverages and a, and a place to sleep, and then they tell me these stories. So it was really th- these villagers who led me to the story, who said, you know, they, over and over again they would show me. I wasn't going to write about World War II in that book, um, but over and over again people would show me uh, this sort of grassy knoll um, in kind of a, you know, a special place outside of the village, and they'd say, that's where we were rich in Jews, and this is where our Jews are buried. and. And great respect shown for this, and this led me to question this narrative that, that Ukrainians were anti-Semites and, and were you know, thrilled to engage in um, to help the Germans with the Holocaust, uh, and that was the narrative when I started out. Um, so, th- so that's the kind of thing, you know. As I was writing um, *Manual for Survival*, my this recent book on Chernobyl, I, I went around with. Um, these biologists—the only two biologists I can find who use the Chernobyl zone as a as a living experiment, as a lab—and they go there twice a year. So I asked them if the, I could join them, and I just joined them as a participant observer. I eventually, they you know they quickly put me to work, and I learned a lot from them. Um, and then I you know follow i wanted to know what the swamp looked like when it was healthy, so I went to the other side of Belarus and followed a, a forester and. I went undercover berry picking, um, you know, just things like that. Because I, I would learn a lot doing that, but also because I figured it would be interesting to write about. I had a sense about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you to give the kind of context and life of the subjects. I mean, you you know, you you wanted to you stated a bit that ago that you wanted to get closer to the history, and I mean, one way I guess to do that is to actually see where, even though it's changed, but nonetheless you can see get a sense of the place in which it occurred, right? Um, I I want to ask you about your first book, uh, A Biography of No Place. I mean, you mentioned it a bit um, and, you know, in that book you treat ethnicity in the western borderlands, but I'm actually curious how you went from that subject to nuclear power and disaster because, you know, I would assume that when you published that book, most people were just expecting you to be another, uh, you know, the next historian of soviet ethnicity right so how did you go from there to this totally different subject
1: well you know the end of that book um you know the thesis of the book is that you know progress occurs in in the capitals um and then if you go to the hinterland if you go to the you know the backward places that's where you see the the wake that progress leaves behind it and that wake is often quite violent and destructive So um, the point of Biography of No Place is that all this is a multi-ethnic borderland and people, different ethnic groups, kept getting picked off and removed until there was pretty much nobody left. And most of the people I was talking to in the 1990s were Ukrainians who had been moved into this place. So it was an ethnic borderland that became a Ukrainian heartland totally by different states, you know, social engineering. Then they, you know, at the end of the war, this place was in a miserable mess, and so they said, "Well, we're going to fix it. We're going to dry up this big swamp, and we're going to put in the world's largest nuclear power plant, and that's going to solve everybody's problems. We're going to have you know endless electricity, and we're going to bring to farmers all these comforts um, and conveniences of the modern world, and it will no longer be a backward hinterland." Um, and we know that you know we know what happened. So in the interlo- in the epilogue, I have this little bit on Chernobyl. And right when I published that, that book in 2004, the Chernobyl zone opened to tourists. And I thought, ah, you know, I'm already a disaster tourist, I might as well go take a look. And uh, off I went, and um, I wrote a little article about that, um, and I, an editor called me up from Oxford and said, will you write a, a book about Chernobyl as a pivotal moment in history? And I said, no, absolutely not. Like there's been so much written about Chernobyl and nobody's interested in it, you know, and I, I, I turned her down. But I did, um, that did get me thinking and I looked around and I was looking at sort of like nuclear histories and I and I noticed that there were these two plutonium plants that had produced twice as much radioactive waste than Chernobyl. And that that was the plutonium plant in in the Soviet Union, the Mayak plant, and the the one the Eastern Washington in the United States, the Hanford plant. And I thought, you know, how come we don't know about these places? And I mean, I'm a Soviet historian by training. I I probably should have just written about the Mayak plant. Um, But I thought, you know, I don't do all this work just for the heck of it. I, I do have a sort of a political agenda behind my work. And I thought, if I just write about the Mayak plant, then people will read it and go, yeah, there's Chernobyl. And now there's this terrible debacle out in Siberia. See, it's the Soviets, or it's the Slavic DNA, or it's the communists. Um, Where if I wrote about both the American one and the the Soviet one, and they both had about the same amount of estimated curies of radioactive isotopes spilled, 350 million curies. That's just a lot. Um, and I thought, well, well, that's weird that this number is about the same. I wonder if there's something about the technology that bridges these two very different political systems and cultures to produce the same kind of environmental nightmare.
0: Let's uh, let's talk about this because y- you write in Plutopia that um, the people of ozersk and as uh, the people of Özersk said uh, used to say, God, I can't get this right. I'll try it again. <laughs> the people of, in Ozarks used to say that if you drilled a hole straight through the earth, you would end up in Richland. That is Richland, Washington. That is how I imagined the two cities orbiting each other linked on the same axis. I mean, you've already alluded to this. Um, but talk a bit more about this, because it's a wonderful image of them kind of orbiting like an atom <laughs> on this axis. Talk about this kind of situation between these two cities.
1: well, I, you know I you know people often call plutopia a comparative history, but I didn't compare that. You will find no instance in that book where I say, unlike in Oszyrsk in Hanford, it's like this that um, the way by by using montage I could just set scenes next to each other and if the reader starts to draw comparisons that's up to the reader but I thought it would be heavy-handed for me to make these comparisons I thought the reader would push back against that and so um, I call this a tandem history as as I as I've already said and and what I thought is that um, you know as soon as this American started the Manhattan Project and started building these plants, these big plants in America to produce the bomb. Um, the Soviets knew about it. You know, Stalin knew about the American atomic bomb before Truman knew about the Manhattan Project. Um, and so, each move that the Americans made were, was answered. You know, so the, you know, Stalin started up a project right in the middle of the war. Um, once. The Americans had dropped the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That very same month, Stalin signed a directive that said all priorities will go to building a nuclear weapon, an atomic shield, as he called it, for the Soviet Union. And that's in part because the Soviets had access to the American um, Air Force's bombing map, which had 50 Soviet cities as nuclear targets already in August of 1945, when they're still allies. Um, so right from the get-go, these two places were produced in tandem. As soon as Hanford was made, it sort of determined, perhaps overdetermined, the creation of Azursk. When the uh, um, Soviets really quickly, in, in just a few years, produced their own nuclear weapon and tested it in 1949, the Americans were like, oh gosh, we only have a few nuclear weapons. We need to build more bombs. And so they started building more reactors and processing plants at Hanford. Once they did that and got up to, you know, like from two to four reactors, then the Soviets had to build more reactors. Um, Once the Americans were cutting corners on radioactive waste and just, well, we you know, we don't really want to make a budget for what to do with this waste or or create a whole division, we'll just dump it in the river or we'll kick it up into the, you know, the stacks into the air, we'll bury it in the ground. Um, You know, they used sort of Egyptian methods of the pharaohs for radioactive waste management. When they did that, the Soviets also cut corners and also dumped their radioactive waste, 3.2 million Curies, in fact, into the Tietje River in 1949 to 1951, creating this big disaster. So these things keep going back and forth, like the book is set up. As I say, I think the the form of a book should match the content.
0: So, I mean, because one's assumption, and I'm assuming this is what you were pushing back against one's assumption is that, well, these are two totally different systems, different political, economic, and social systems, but one of the things you show in this book is how there's so many parallels, and, and one parallel that's interesting is the, the people's lives that actually inhabit these places and work in these these plants, so can you talk a bit about those parallels as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of one the things that really got me about this as I research the story, I, I realized that both uh, places, both plutonium plants, had spawned these similar kinds of closed atomic cities. And these cities were what I call plutopia, plutonium utopias. And they were limited access, only, only plant workers and their families could live in these cities. Um, they were federally subsidized and, and, and very well subsidized, subsidized uh, child-centered communities where working class factory workers... Could live and get paid like their professional class bosses, and I was like, what? You know, I wonder why they both did that." Um, you know, the Americans already had company towns, and, and Richmond was like a company town, though it was owned by the federal government, not by you know private enterprise. And um, the Soviets already had their, you know, they they didn't have closed cities until they noticed Los Alamos with the fences and the pass system. And they, they oh, well, we, you know, they, they directly copied that and so created this thing in the Soviet Union that became quite common, which were closed company towns. Um, but finally, I realized that, th- that these Plutopias were the key to, realize, to figuring out what went wrong in these places. And, and what went wrong is that, um, and the reason why nobody really knows about these places, even after a book like Plutopia's been out for a, a number of years, is because there are no big accidents. There's no moment where you know, the, the cameras are running and there's some big poof of air in the sky and, and the, and the media is reporting on it. Um, what I realize is that the spillage of you know, Chernobyl spilled between 50 million and, and 200 million curies, so the spillage of 350 million curies over four decades of the Cold War in each of these places occurred as part of the daily operating order these were basically disasters by design Mm -hmm. Um, and that to me was a really chilling realization and and i realized that the the plant workers understood perfectly what was happening and as i talked to workers they'd be like yeah that was a really dangerous job and we really messed things up around here so what was their motivation to stay in these toxic territories territories increasingly toxic as time went by with their families, these, you know, these are places with the nuclear family only, no grandparents, no aunts and uncles, just the nuclear family to build nuclear bombs. And I don't see much reference to nuclear families before this period. Um, so these family nuclear families are highly dependent without grandma and grandpa, without aunts and uncles to, to look, you know, for childcare, for provisioning, for putting up things. Nuclear families are very dependent on states to provide services that extended families provided before this period of the 1940s and 50s and so these working class people were um, uh, ennobled um, by this plutopia they were felt like they had you know could provide social mobility for their kids from the working class into the professional classes the schools were excellent the recreational music programs were fantastic phds taught in the high schools so is anybody here from richland Usually when I speak at a university, somebody is from Richmond because they have the highest per capita PhDs in the country. And often people are from a closed Soviet city. Anybody here from a closed Soviet city? Because they had the same phenomenon, very well educated. Um, and so this was the, you know, these this sort of delivery of the good life to working class people, a kind of life they could have nowhere else, secured submission and silence. So they kept quiet about these this major environmental a disaster going on around them.
0: I want to go back to something you, you said that alludes to the next question I have, and that is how we even conceptualize nuclear disaster. Because as you rightly said, these places aren't known because there was no event. And we tend to, we tend to think of nuclear disaster in terms of events with proper names, whether it's Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or Fukushima. Um, how does... Seeing nuclear disaster in terms of an event shape or distort, clearly, uh, our understanding of their effects and their consequences.
1: Well, that's the argument I make in Manual for Survival, is that... uh you know what the Soviets wanted was to treat Chernobyl as a as a one-off event that was very contained geographically and temporally, and they even a month after the accident they came out with a propaganda plan. They sent to the trusted media sources, "This is how we're going to deal with Chernobyl. We're going to lionize." This may seem familiar to you after watching the HBO show. We're going to lionize the liquidators. We're going to treat it as a a moment contained in time that has a beginning and a concluding chapter. And we're going to enclose this space and call it the Chernobyl zone. And we're going to pretend that all the radiation is contained inside of there. And that's where the accident took place. And if you notice, the, the focus on Chernobyl to this day is on that one Chernobyl zone, a very small portion of the territory that was contaminated. Um, but everybody wants to go to the Chernobyl zone, um, and that there's a real sense that if you watch the Chernobyl show, there's the ticking time clock. T- you know, the seconds ticking. Um, you know, men running around, um, defending the nation, saving the world, um, and then and then it's over. Then the accident's over. There's a trial. The perpetrators are, and that was the other thing the Soviets wanted: make sure we, we have a scapegoat and we'll put them on trial. And so that's all in the you know HBO show. But the real drama. Um, plays out in over many many years, continues into this day. I tried to show in my book, and extends far beyond the Chernobyl zone in places where that are fully inhabited to this day. In fact, there's a second uninhabited Chernobyl zone in southern Belarus. That's pretty much fully depopulated that, you know, no disaster tourists or journalists visit, but has the same features of the Chernobyl zone with, you know, abandoned villages, you know, et cetera. But there's, since there's no fence to draw people like, you know, moths to a flame, nobody goes there. Um, so I think a better way of, of thinking about Chernobyl is as an acceleration rather than as a one-off accident. Because what I found as I as I looked into the ecology of the Pripyat marshes where this accident occurred, is that these, well before they even built the Chernobyl plant, before they put the first brick down, that swamp was radioactive. And the people who lived in that swamp had 10 to 30 times more radioactivity in their bodies than people who lived in Kiev and Minsk nearby. And that was the the Soviet study that that they did in the 1960s and the censored publication, they said it was from global fallout probably from American bombs, they said. Um, but there was there's a, an Air Force bombing range in that swamp that I, I spent a lot of time in, and um, I found some records that alluded to the fact that they were testing small strategic nuclear weapons there in the 1960s. Um, I, I wasn't able to confirm that because those ar- archives in Moscow are closed to the public, but I did see a lot of environmental um, evidence that probably makes that to be true, Um, sort of mutations of plants that occurred in the Chernobyl zone, and then I would suddenly see them pretty far away in this um, bombing range. Um, So this place was radioactive before Chernobyl. Chernobyl was a big spike in radioactivity. Um, And then there was other accidents that occurred after 1986, there were dozens of accidents that occurred. And then in 2017, I was with the, the biologists in the, in the zone, and we went to the Red Forest, that's the most radioactive spot after caused by Chernobyl. And there had been a, a forest fire a couple about eight months before. And I expected about 50 to 100 sievert, microSieverts an hour, which is a lot of radiation. You only want to cut a couple hours of that. But all of a sudden, my Geiger counter is going crazy. It's screeching 10 times more at, at 1,000 microSieverts an hour. And I asked the biologist, I said, Well, what's going on? And they said, Oh, yeah, because of that fire, it volatilized all the radioactivity that was stored in the leaf litter and in the dead branches and in the trees. And it just made it a new nuclear event all over again. Now, the problem we have in the age of the Anthropocene is that we have these long, we create these toxic nightmares that have almost eternal lifespans. But we still only have the patience of mere humans and the attention span of humans. So nobody covered that fire in 2017. Um, you know, that's already like, that's already a done story.
0: Hello, this is Mad Vicker from Yorkshire. In the uk and you're listening to the srb podcast since i was a boy i've always been fascinated by the ussr and this makes srb vital listening for me thank you are, are you surprised by the continued res- popular residents of chernobyl because you, you, manual survival is one of you know a handful of books that came out you have the hbo series which was wildly successful probably surprisingly so uh, why? Why do you think that it pl- has such a continued hold on the imagination?
1: I think um, disaster porn would be the short answer. That, and I think there's—I mean—that's sort of a you know sort of a goofy short answer. But I think there's a really serious something behind that. In that, um, people like myself um, go to these places that have been abandoned or, and destroyed and, and left behind. Um, and there are more of them in an ever-increasing, we have a, you know, as we have a, um, an increasing pace of abandonment of spots on Earth, because they're too toxic, because people don't, you know, they're building whole cities in China and abandoning them before they're ever inhabited. Um, and so I think that this, um, going to these places as tourists or, or going to them virtually through the web, um, people are exploring Maybe by exploring these sort of recent pasts, or exploring a potential future, as we think about you know species extinction, something called species loneliness when it's just humans are around, and then then past that when there's there's nobody around. I I, I do actually think that that's sort of the dark reason why Chernobyl was suddenly. I I didn't know about the HBO show or the other two books that were being um, written. I probably that probably would have put me off had I known. Um, but I think that's what why there was such a boom this, this past year.
0: Yeah, and it, and it looks like we are also at a kind of cultural moment. I mean, I'm thinking back to your, uh, you know, when you started about Red Dawn, which was also a, a very important influential film on me, too, for similar reasons. Actually, it's kind of eerie. Uh, but in that period, in the Cold War period, most of the the films were about, you know, the Cold War context of the Soviet Union, and the United States and then nuclear, you know, nuclear holocaust is not just or invasion like Red Dawn or that that TV show uh, The Day After, which is about nuclear, you know, war. But since the end of the Cold War, it's increasingly most Hollywood films, they're mega disaster films Mm -hmm. whether it's either environmental or disease Mm -hmm. um and so it i think it possibly and maybe you can comment this the fast continue fascination which chernobyl feeds is also part of that kind of larger you know imagination of you know we can as as somebody once said i forget who it was we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine the end of capitalism for example
1: yeah i think that's a really um good way of putting i think it was Stephen Jay Gould who said you know it, every time we recognize a problem it takes us at least 50 years to start to act on solutions and I think that that's what these you know sort of disaster this run of disaster um, you know cultural media is about is thinking about these disasters as we're busy busily contributing to them as we're busily making them and and we feel powerless yeah. because you know who's gonna make a decision on this Wh- where is this gonna go
0: um, a major theme in, in Manual Survival is about the production of knowledge on the one hand, right? What do we know about Chernobyl, the event itself, but also the after effects and the effects of environmental damage and radiation? But also, interestingly enough, the production of ignorance, which I think is the more interesting part of this. And, and talk about the, the issue of, of knowledge production and the production of ignorance and how they relate to Chernobyl's legacies.
1: One of the reasons I, I, I did decide finally to write a book about Chernobyl is that as I researched Plutopia, I was, met all these farmers who lived either outside the plutonium plants in Siberia or in eastern Washington, and they told me the same stories that, about health problems that ran through their families, that ran through their bodies, um, multiple chronic diseases. Um, and I would ask the scientists about it, and the scientists would say, oh, they're just a bunch of whiners that's not you know that you just get a couple cancers from radiation you don't get all those weird symptoms they're reporting you know they're reporting you know sort of like from chronic fatigue and, and, and sort of massive allergies to um, circulation disorders digestive tract disorders endocrine problems um, birth defects things like that and um, so i reported a little bit what i could find in plutopia about this trying to solve this problem but they were military sites and they were the military wasn't in the United States wasn't terribly curious and in the Soviet Union and in Russia today they're not terribly forthcoming with the documents. So I th- decided I would try look in Chernobyl and see what I could find out about the medical and the environmental health effects of Chernobyl. So if you're if you're gonna read my book to look at for a big disaster narrative, don't read my book. There's Plochy has a good one and Higginbotham I haven't read his yet, but it's probably good too. But I'm not that interested in the disaster itself, but the aftermath of it. Um, and what I found w- was curious. I found a couple of things. The first thing I noticed is I walked into the archives in, in Kiev, and I'd worked there many times before. And I, I asked, the, you know, the women who I knew quite well, I would like the medical records on Chernobyl. And they, and they were like, oh, God, how many times do we have to school you? There, there aren't going to be any. That was a banned topic during the Soviet Union, and you know, there's, there's nothing there. And so I was like, well, let's just take a look. Because, you know, I knew one thing about these women. I knew they didn't like to get off their stools. <laughs> and so they got off their stools, and they come back. And within, like, three seconds, I have in my in hand this record of, you know, whole volumes that are entitled the, the Medical Consequences of the Chernobyl Catastrophe. And I realized that the archivists, they weren't trying to deceive me. They just didn't know about these records because nobody had ever checked them out before. Shocking, right? Um, and I started reading, and I sat down that day, and I was like, I'm gonna be at this for years. Um, and I went on from Kiev to Minsk, and then to you know, the, uh, Moscow, and then down to the provincial cities, Zhitomir and Gomol, and then down to the county levels. We got county, I, I hired a couple of research assistants because it was such a massive job. We got county hospital records, and everywhere, absolutely everywhere what you find is people on the ground doctors and local researchers and radiation monitors are saying we have a public health disaster on our hands the um, conventional number that the Soviets reported is that 300 people were hospitalized my count in the first couple months after the accident is 11,000 people I'm sorry 40,000 people were hospitalized 11,000 of them were kids in the greater Belarus uh, Ukraine and Western Russia area Um, the official count is thirty three people died sometimes they say forty five people um I, you know there's just thousands of people dying left and right the The Ukrainians give compensation to thirty five thousand uh, women whose husbands died with a Chernobyl connection. That just counts a small category of the population men who were workers. It doesn't count you know anybody else. so I was like, why don't we know this story I mean it, you know and, and and when you travel around I, I would pick up hitchhikers as I traveled um. And I always picked up women and children, and they were, everybody I picked up was traveling to or from medical treatment. And, you know, just anecdotally, it was so clear. So, so why don't we know this story? That's when I went to the International Archives, and I worked my way through um, about five UN archives and the Greenpeace archives. Um, and what I found was that um, the international experts who took over managing this disaster as the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, worked really hard to collude with the Soviet officials in Moscow, not the officials in Ukraine and Belarus, but in Moscow, to make this story go away. Um, And I thought, well, why would they want to do that? You know, the the Cold War was still sort of cold and, you know, going, and, you know, the Americans have always done their best to make the Soviets look bad. Why would they try to dig them out of this hole? Um, And what I realized is that, the Americans were facing their own nuclear threats in the form, at the end of the Cold War, in the form of lawsuits. So in 1987, um, the, the American and National Association of Health Physicists, health physicists are physicists who deal with health issues. They're the people who set um, you know, uh, standards for running nuclear power plants or disposing of nuclear waste. They had a conference in Columbia, Maryland. and. There was a Department of Energy lawyer at the conference, and he said, listen, you know, the threat to nuclear power right now are lawsuits. And so what we're going to do is have breakout sessions. We have Department of Justice lawyers here, and they're going to, you know, train all you to become expert witnesses for the U.S. government to defend the U.S. government in lawsuits that are coming up. And so who was suing? Um, Atomic veterans who had been exposed during nuclear testing. Marshall Islanders who had been exposed during nuclear testing. Downwinders in Nevada and Utah who were exposed during nuclear testing. But that could have been Americans all across the continent because that radioactive fallout went everywhere, including to Pittsburgh. Um, And people who lived outside of Hanford and other um, nuclear weapons production plants, they were all going to court to sue people who had been tested on, inje- injected with um, plutonium, kids who had been fed radioactive oatmeal, you know, et cetera. Um, and so what, what was these health physicists, all the health physicists in the United States were working to become expert witnesses on behalf of the government, but they were gonna be presented as objective scientists. Um, and so this was the kind of atmosphere in which ignorance was produced. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I want to I want to complicate the, this this issue of um, the production of knowledge and the production of ignorance because on the one hand you do have this you know you speak about the international organizations but what about the knowledge that's pr- been produced on the ground amongst amongst local researchers uh, how do you uh, relate that to you know what's going on in the higher levels of the international scientific community
1: I guess I should refine my point that the, that the international experts after ninety one Took over making the authoritative statements about Chernobyl assessments, starting with that 1991 UN statement that there was no health effects, um, and they took that, they took that they sort of picked up that mantle from Moscow, which it was no longer speaking, you know, around about 1991. Um, lots of knowledge was produced. Uh, really, I mean, Belarus was really pretty impressive um, because of this one physicist, Nesterenko who notices unbelievable, unbelievably high levels of radioactivity in southern Belarus. And and other people noticed it too. A a Soviet Red Army general wrote in to say, you know, you need to extend this zone of alienation from 30 kilometers to 80. A KGB general said, no, it needs to be 120 kilometers. Um, A a Zvezda reporter who was sent in to um, just write the happy story about happy collective farmers after the accident, wrote his happy story and then he sent a telegram, you know, top secret telegram saying, You've got to do something. You've got to help these people out there. They don't know what they're doing, and it's a mess. So, all, you know, there was a real alarm, especially in southern Belarus. Um, and the Nestorenko, I think, corralled a bunch of um, scientists in the Belarusian Academy of Scientists, and they just went off and started um, all kinds of case control studies, really good ones, that I found in the archive of the Belarusian Academy of Science, um, starting in 1986. So they really have, like, they have the background and they, you know, they just go all the way through. Um, and they were the ones, when the international experts came in in 1989 and 1990, they were the ones who were handing this information over, whatever they could. And, and they were the ones who were getting chastised. You know, the, the first World Health Organization um, posse said, you know, specifically, you need to go tell those Belarusian scientists that they're terrible scientists, that they're doing sloppy work. And what they have to say is totally wrong, and what they were saying is, "Oh, we have all these children with thyroid cancer." They're saying what what things that we now know are true. Um, So I think what happens is all yes, all this I think very good, incredible knowledge was produced, and and most of my book is sort of repeating what these people found. But it was almost too easy to discredit because at that time everything Soviet. They had crappy politics, they had crappy economics, and they had. Terrible science and technology and medicine. And so it just, you know, just throw it in. And then so these farmers who say they're sick, it's, you know, they're just, they're welfare cases looking for a handout. They're they're socialist. You You know, who works harder than a peasant? Produces everything that they make. Purchases only what salt and kerosene. And these people are suddenly called loafers. You know, just an astounding fact, but it was so easy to project that message to the west. It everybody was ripe to take that in.
0: Do you think that that's because of the also because of the times of like kind of cold war triumphalism? Absolutely. That the and the general kind of cultural bias against Eastern Europe, Russia, Soviet Union however you want to categorize it. Yeah. Because one of the big themes too, I mean, right from the beginning of the book, you have this this interesting uh, tragic and horrifying uh, episode of this doctor from UCLA who's literally performing medical experiments on Chernobyl victims and doing bone marrow transplants when they end up being completely unnecessary and actually his, his patients all die versus the Ukrainian uh, radiologist or I forget what she, her specialty was who is has a a different approach.
1: Just gives medicine, and you know, just vitamins, yeah. Yeah,
0: and, and so another theme is this just of the ignorance, let's say, is to just disregard the science and knowledge that's produced in that, you know, social, political, you know, scientific space. Um, that's what's really interesting about this book, Manual for Survival, because most of our narratives of Chernobyl it is a very self-contained, you know, narrative of a story of the Soviet Union, the Soviet system. If anything, if it goes outside of that, maybe it might speak a bit about the radioactivity that floated over northern Europe or something like this, but you really make an indictment of the international, in the international context for this. What has been the response to your book?
1: Oh, I've been skewered. <laughs> Maybe some of you have noticed. Um, the, you know, the day the book came out, uh, one of these health physicists, a guy I, who, I, who appears very briefly in a couple of sentences in my book, Um, wrote a a 12-page book review in the Journal of Radiological Protection. And I saw that, I'm like, shoo, it's just for the Journal of Radiological Protection. Only 35 people will read that. (laughs) Uh, But he put it on um, his Twitter feed and... um, he he broadcast it widely, and he sent it to all kinds of journalists. And this journalist, um, who's not really a journalist, he's he runs two um, NGOs that promote they're environmental NGOs that promote nuclear power, but they're anti-renewable. But um, and that Michael Schellenberger picked it up, and he you know uh, you know promoted it that review that twelve-page review in um, Forbes, and and Schellenberger just sort of went at me in Forbes. Um, I've recently moved from UMBC to MIT, and the the nuclear engineering department um, at MIT were were also not very happy about me. And, And so somebody wrote a letter to the president of MIT and to the dean of my college and to my chair and all of my colleagues, most of whom I had not yet met, saying I should be fired and I wasn't qualified for my job. So there was a real full court press to try to discredit um, the book, and th- the way to do that was to discredit me. And, and I recognized those tactics because that's exactly what they had done to dissenting scientists. Um, you don't attack the arguments because there's 77 pages of footnotes in that book, and it's kind of hard to dispute with facts. So you just make the person look bad, and you try to get them fired. And you try to make sure they never get funding again and that they don't have any credibility. And that was right. So it was really, I never had that experience where I suddenly became a character in my own history.
0: It's probably, you didn't intend to insert yourself in that no. way. dear. no. Um, what, were you surprised by the reaction or it, once it started to unfold, you since you recognize it, you're like, well, you know. But when you finished the book, did you think it was going to generate any response like this? Or do you think, you know, as most academics, we... You know, it flies under the radar of of any notice.
1: Well, the book had two legal reviews, um, which means that literary lawyers, you know, went through page by page, and they, you know, said, you know, you, uh, you need to interview this guy. You make you you know you make some claim charges about him. You need to get his you know response and stuff. So I had to do uh, some additional reviews. I had to do some additional sort of backing up my claims, and and that I, that was great. I'm, I'm very fortunate that it, that happened, um, but I felt pretty strongly, you know, I. I Saw in this archives that scientists, you know, what does a scientist peddle? Their credibility, their legitimacy, their their truthfulness. Um, I saw them lying. I saw them hiding evidence. Um, uh, you know, taking biopsies from doctors in Ukraine, having them check out as cancer, you know, pediatric cancers, and then disappearing the evidence. Things like that. So I I could have just made these people generic and said one scientist or you know certain scientists, etc. But I thought it was important to name people. And so I figured I was going to get in some trouble um, because I have I have I I talk about perpetrators, not just victims.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you expand your discussion of of the international players in this beyond, say, the American situation? Like what about the World Health Organization or the Europeans and, and other organizations?
1: So the World Health Organization, you would think, you know, Health and they they want to protect people and they got a a big grant, $20 million from Japan um, and they were going to do their own, a little pilot study and then they were leading towards a big epidemiological study along the lines of the atomic bomb survivor studies. That's what everybody was calling for. We need to do a big study, hundreds of thousands of people, really figure out what happens to chronic low doses of radiation. But the world, so when the Soviets say, well, you know, we we have people up on the streets, you know, in 1989, you know, protesting about Chernobyl, and they call in the World Health to do an independent assessment by foreign experts, and foreign experts is like the holy grail, like that will calm people down. Um, The World Health sends in three guys, physicists, who spend 10 days in these villages, talking in towns, talking to people, and then they come away and say, there's absolutely no problem, Um, these Bielorussian scientists are really crappy scientists, Um, there's, you know, you can double or triple the dose and everybody be fine that's world health that was nobody believed that i mean what can three scientists say in 10 days and so then moscow asked the international atomic energy agency to do the same thing in independent assessment they spend more time they send in more they spend like 18 months they send in 100 to 200 scientists um and say the exact same thing so you're saying well you know so who are these players here the americans are, as you know from our president um the americans pay a lot of the bills. At the UN, and so they had a, a big footprint in terms of influence. And so the the Chernobyl committee, they had an ad hoc UN Chernobyl committee. They're like, well, the Americans want this. They, they keep saying this is what the Americans want. Um, but also there was the French and the British, who were nuclear powers. Uh, the Russians have a big voting you know, nuclear powers. They all have very similar concerns. They all, you know, the the British um, blew up bombs in. Western Australia and in the South Pacific, the French blew up bombs in Algeria and in the South Pacific. Uh, the Americans blew up bombs in the South Pacific and in the continental US. Um, that, you know, who has the temerity to blow up bombs in your own country? Everybody else blew up bombs in, in colonial spaces. <laughs> um, so I mean the, these, this, the liability of this was just tremendous. but if you could say, and they, and they come up with this already like a couple of months after Chernobyl, oh look, world's worst nuclear accident, and only 33 people died. We can live with those consequences. That becomes the rhetoric to this day.
0: Talk about some of the people you encountered who are doing this scientific work on the ground and, and trying to overcome the various hurdles and restrictions of getting their work into the public or presenting it or publishing it.
1: Um, yeah, I tried to, um, and I actively looked for in the archives, these sort of everyday heroes. Um, and, you know, when, what was really fascinating about the archives is that, you know, these medical officials are, are corresponding back and forth in, in classified, you know, the, the letters are marked classified for office use only. and. Um, you know, given Soviet history, they presume they were having a private conversation that if the past was the guide, they would these documents would never be revealed. So it's pretty interesting the kind of conversations people are having. and And one trend you notice is that sort of bad news reported on the ground moves up from the county level to the province level. At, from the province level, it moves up to the republic level. Each time it goes up a step, the numbers look a little better because it was your mandate as a public health official in the Soviet Union to report that the population is getting happier and healthier every day. And if you didn't, you got in trouble. And so the people who, who insisted on reporting the bad news were really exceptional, they, they really were quite heroic and they got in trouble for it. You know, They got slandered and, and threatened and fined and, and this kind of stuff, but they kept insisting on it. So one guy lived you know, in, this, in the Rivni province, like 200 kilometers away from the accident site. Um, the levels in the soil were not so bad. There was no you know, special remediation efforts. But he kept saying, look, the milk here is radioactive. People are drinking milk that's above permissible levels. It's dangerous. And they, nobody believed him. They're like, the levels are too low there. We're just, you know, just, so he, like, he went to Kiev and he knocked on doors, and nobody believed him. Nobody, this goes on for years. Finally, he takes a truck and fills it with seven tons of milk and sends it to Kiev and says, you test it. And they tested all this milk and they're like, oh, you're right, it's really radioactive. And then they started doing precautionary measures there. Um, I found this woman, you know, lots of uh, course, lots of people wrote their leaders um, to say, you know, look, we have these problems. You might not know about them, but I will inform you. They're like loyal citizens, not like dissidents. And this woman kept writing and she's like, you know, I'm." I'm just a high school physics teacher living here in Kiev, but I found these particles, these very hot, radioactively hot particles in my courtyard and in the you know, threshold of my apartment building. And I, I you know, she taped them to a piece of paper, a little tiny dust speck to a piece of paper, and every day she'd measure them, the radioactivity coming from them. And as a physicist, she could then calculate what isotopes were in that particle. And she gets this whole sort of rainbow of radioactive isotopes and then figures out that what they've been told that there was a chemical and a steam explosion at the plant was actually, in fact, a nuclear explosion. And she's writing, she's like, you may not know this, but th- you know, this was a nuclear explosion and I've done all the math and she's writing these long letters. Um, you know, she, I knocked on her door one day, she still had the same address and phone number and I found her quite easily and, sh- and she was like, oh my god, I sent those letters 30 years ago, finally somebody answered them, <laughs> amazing. Um, but, only in 2016 did a Swedish group affirm that indeed it was a nuclear explosion. So here's this woman with very few means, like does her own like, you know, (laughs) scotch tape, a Geiger counter, does her own research and and figures out what it took a whole institute 30 years to figure out. Um, So all kinds of people like that. Um, This KGB doctor who had a clinic um, who, you know, had 2,000 people. He said, I have the best clinic in the country because I'm a KGB doctor, I get, you know, I get all the great stuff, and I also have access to levels of radioactivity. I have a high security clearance, and I can figure out how much my patients have been exposed to. So I can tell you there are 12 different radioactive isotopes lodged in my patients' bodies. And what that does at low levels is cause a perfectly healthy person to have a number of debilitating debilitating diseases that makes life miserable. And he reported that in 1990 to Moscow. It was called in immediately by the KGB guy called in by the party leadership who wanted to arrest him and throw him in jail. And so then he had to have a KGB general back him up and all this kind of thing. But he did you know, then go into civilian life. He had to sort of step down from that job. So there's all kinds of people like that. I mean, just amazing people.
0: Talk, talk more about the, the, these people that you encountered, these ordinary people. Um, how, how did they understand their situation? How did they survive their situation? And, and what did you learn from them?
1: Well, you know, the um, stereotype about peasants or you know, collective farm—you know, farmers is that they're you know, provincial and they're not very well educated and they're you know, kind of stuck in their ways and that kind of thing. But what I found, and, you know, there are thousands of letters from citizens in the archives. And so I, my research assistant and I went through and found the interesting ones and then we just tried to find the people who wrote them. And then we went back 30 years later and knocked on their doors. And so we had sort of the before and after. Um, and what people were doing was uh, making alliances with uh, the guy who came to town in his white suit with the Geiger counter. And they, they would, I presume, they would butter them up. You know, have some tea, have some of my fresh milk from my farm, etc. and then find out. And, then, and tell me how much, you know, radiation is right here in my courtyard. Um, they would make a lot, they, you know, women especially would spend a lot of time in health clinics in the waiting rooms whether they are there because a family member was sick or their kids were sick and they would talk to other women and they would talk to the nurses and the doctors who were often also women and they weren't supposed to tell them anything but they would. So these farmers and these townspeople are writing these incredibly well-informed letters. They know more than their local leaders because their local leaders don't have access to this information. And they've put it together. They're like, this schoolyard is, you know, our town in general, you know, like, and the average is okay, but this schoolyard is really radioactive, and our kids play here every day. And so we want you to ask, and then they'd have really practical solutions. They weren't just complaining. You know, that's the other thing. They're, they're just whiners. They were like, we want you to pave over that, you know, grassy field and, and make it asphalt. That way it won't, the radiation will be stuck under the asphalt. Um, all these trucks come through Chernobyl from Chernobyl through our town with their radioactive dust. that gets spread all along the road. We want you to make a bypass road. Um, we we want to have, um, you know, groceries brought in. That you know, and and in order to do that, we need refrigerators for our little village stores because there are no refrigerators here. So you bring in the milk and it comes in a cart, an open cart, and it all it becomes dusty and spoiled. Just things like that. I mean, just um, really well informed. Um, They were able to master technical solutions. And then because they had a really good understanding of their environment and the local ways that they quickly learned how radiation moves through environments and then through their bodies. So like at this wool factory, there are women who don't have a high school education. Their job is to clean wool, which is basically to rinse shit from the bottom you know of the from the hides of um of bales of wool not the hides but you know just bales of wool and so um th- but these women were telling me all about they're like well yeah radioactive iodine goes to the thyroid and radioactive strontium goes to the bone marrow and cesium settles in the flesh and in the joints and and they had a very good understanding of radiobiology with their l- not yet having a high school education um so that leads me to you know think about survival is that the more minds, we have this thing about experts and let's turn to the experts and then the experts sort of get stymied or they can't speak, their, their jobs are too political, whoever's paying them won't let them. You know, the people attacking me are getting paid by the nuclear industry and they're attacking me. Maybe they're getting paid to attack me. Um, but these people, the more minds that can be involved in a situation to come up with solutions, the better. And this, this you know, hierarchy we have between lay people and experts, um, doesn't make any sense in this complicated world that we live in now, where toxins, and the the results of you know, hundred years of industrialization, has has t- changed our environments and our bodies completely.
0: You 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 described yourself as a disaster tourist. <laughs> were you were you ever afraid of the effects on yourself from the disaster?
1: I mean, I wasn't thrilled about it. Um, I knew I was, um, you know, getting a, a dose, and I and I had a certain understanding of what that could mean. Um, you know, cancers can be random, um, so a little tiny bit can cause a cancer, but it, you know that'd be down the road. Um, but I, you know, I tried to take precautions. I always brought old clothes into the zone, and I left them there, and you know, I changed my shoes. I, you know, I. I justified even going there because it was um, sort of for a higher cause in order to sort of bring attention to this place. Um, I don't recommend any of you young people going there as tourists. I think that's foolish, you know, I mean, people truck in and they truck out with those same shoes and those same things, you know, spreading that stuff all around. so I you know I didn't eat like you know um my research assistant and I um, went as I said undercover berry picking in in northern Ukraine pretty far from the from the Chernobyl site, but in these swampy areas that redistribute radioactive waste so that the um, and the and berries are super efficient and so we we wanted to see you know what was happening and so we and, and it's a big industrial organization now. Like there's just thousands of pickers um, picking tons and tons of berries every summer since Ukraine joined the European Association, uh, European Union Association, 2014. So we went picking, and um, and then we, you know, we brought there's these buyers who are on the road. We sold to a buyer, and then we went to the warehouse where they were, you know, wanding every berry that came in, every, you know, and and all the berries. I asked the woman like, how many of these berries that you buy are are radioactive and, and, and she said, well, they're all radioactive, but some are really radioactive. Um, and so, but you know, so there's a limit, 450 becquerels a kilogram, um, and they were, you know, the two dirty berries were put over here, and the and the under the limit berries were put over there. But I noticed that she bought all of the berries, so I was like, what are you going to do with these dirty berries? And um, she didn't really answer my question, but the pickers told me, like, well, like you know, it's like the sausage during the Soviet Union—they just mix them, they get an average. It fits within the you know international norm, and then the berries can go abroad. They they go from Ukraine into Poland, where they're processed and they're labeled as Polish, and then they go abroad. I found these same berries. I tracked them over the border from Canada into the United States, and there was a truck. because Homeland Security caught a a ra- a truck with a radiating mass inside i'm reading the reports they look inside it's not a dirty bomb it's berries from ukraine and i asked i called up the border guard who wrote that report he like, says "I said, then what did you do and he goes well we let it in because they were within the norm which is 1250 becquerels a kilogram in the united states so you know that now, now the now you know chernobyl comes a little bit closer to us so that i mean i guess that's my you know if you read the end of my book um, I'm pretty sure we're all getting a pretty good dose here, from American testing of nuclear weapons. We don't need Chernobyl. We don't need to be that close to Chernobyl because we had our own, you know, brew happening in this country throughout the Cold War. And if you correlate that, those, those, you know, those bomb tests with which you only hear about again one event, Lucky Dragon. But if you correlate those pr- prosaic, banal bomb tests. Um, with rates of cancer in this country, and, uh, and other kind of um, birth defects, which is the, the chief killer of, of infants now in this country, and um, male sterility, you know, male sperm counts in the Northern Hemisphere have dropped in half since 1945, things like that, then you start to think, oh, you know, we, we do have, a, a, you know, everybody has that impact. And I guess I started to think in that sort of grander relative way that I'm already exposed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, this goes to my final question, you know, your book is a guide for the future. Uh, and this, of course, suggests that it's not just a dispassionate, you know, academic study. And you've already stated, or you know, 20 minutes ago that you have a purpose here. Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> how do you hope this book should be used? You know, how do you see it as a guide for the future?
1: Um, well, it's called a, a Manual for Survival um, in part because throughout the archives, there was um, manuals. You know, how do you uh, be, be a, remain a dairy farmer in a radioactive landscape? How do you uh, package meat, radioactive meat? Um, so, you know, a manual for meat packers, a manual for farmers, a manual for doctors. How do you treat patients with low-level exposure to uh, radioactive isotopes? Um, so I found manuals throughout the archive, and, and I saw this, um, the people who were living in this, this area, you know, I was re- returning to territories I had been in the 1990s when I wrote my first book, um, that these people were real survivors. They had survived everything the 20th century had to throw at them, you know, revolution, civil war, World War One, World War Two. Ethnic deportation, ethnic cleansing, genocide, nuclear disaster. Um, And I thought, you know, we're, you know, I started writing this book around 2014. Um, We're in this period of tremendous ecological crisis right now. I thought, maybe we're going to need to know how to survive. Maybe I should go talk to the experts, these people who live, these simple villagers who live around this swamp who've learned over the last couple of generations how to survive in extreme circumstances.
0: That was Kate Brown, a professor of science, technology, and society at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She has written four books that have either won awards or have been nominated for them. They include A Biography of No Place, From Ethnic Borderland to Soviet Heartland, Plutopia, Nuclear Families in Atomic Cities and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters, Dispatches from Dystopia, Histories of Places Not Yet Forgotten, and her newest book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian... East European and Eurasian studies at the university of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at SRBPodcast.org. As always, Thanks to my high excellencies, high well-borns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.